Hello, I'm Ian Wielden, a senior lecturer at Newcastle University and host of the Cultural Peeps podcast. Today's guest is Janice Tulloch, the director of Janice Tulloch Associates Limited. In this episode, Janice and I talk about her journey as an archivist, freelance archives and heritage consultant and genealogist. In our chat, Janice describes how two negative visits to her university career office made her determined to pursue a career as an archivist. Janice then went on to work in a number of organisations, including Buckinghamshire Records Office, East Kent Archives, and at MLA Northwest. In 2005, Janice then undertook the one-year CLAW Leadership Programme, and as is the case for many professionals partaking in the scheme, the experience was a transformational one, and where she decided to go freelance as an archive consultant. As usual, there are links to the various projects and organisations in the podcast notes, so you can follow up on anything you want to know more about there. Thanks again to Janice, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So thanks for joining me today. If we could just start off by hearing a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do. Okay. Um, well, my name's Janice, Janice Tulloch. I'm an archives and heritage consultant. So that means that I use my archive and museum heritage site skills, working with a whole wide range of different organisations and individuals. So I might be, um, for example, today I was working with the National Trust for Scotland, um, helping them to develop their strategy for archives. Um, another day I might be doing consultation for um, a Heritage Lottery Fund bid, or I might be talking to lots of people about what they want from a uh, a new um, museum or um, heritage attraction or I might be working with an archive collection on the ground so sorting cataloguing it's really diverse range of activities that I get involved in yeah really wide range of stuff so how how do people find you is that through reputation or is it something that you kind of do you hunt out opportunities and apply for things yeah, it's a really good question. It's a mix, really. So it's a mix of people saying, you need to speak to Jan. Right. <laughs> That's quite what <laughs> Janice knows about that. So I, I'm involved in a lot of sporting archive projects. So they'll, they get recommended to me for that. Or um, my website is, is people find out a lot, uh, find me a lot through the, through the website. So they'll Google things like, National Lottery Heritage Fund help or <laughs> National Lottery Heritage Fund activity plan and, and my website comes up. And then I guess having a network really works for me. People will say, oh, I can recommend someone who can help you with that. Um, I think the network really works really well. And it's a, a network from across the heritage sector, but then it's also moving out into things like sports and um, archives and entertainment. Yeah, lo lots of different places. So was that the intention when you started this or is it just kind of evolved because of the way that the sector's evolved and the way that funding has evolved and organisations have seen different opportunities? 
No, I don't think I had any any intention when I started consultancy 16, 17 years ago. I was an archives policy advisor, um, but I wanted to go back into archives, but the opportunities were limited and I didn't want to move again because I'd moved a lot. So I decided to go freelance and nobody was a freelance archive person at that moment. And so the the... The work that I've done has built up as I've made other contacts and they've brought me into projects. So, yeah, it wasn't what, what I intended at all, but you go with, with, with how, it, how, it, how it evolves, yeah. really. The, the kinds of projects, you mentioned a range of different things just there before. I think you mentioned like National Trust Scotland and then you're working on some other stuff which was more hands-on. Is there such thing as an average day for you or is it a kind of project by project kind of existence? There isn't an average day and that's what I love and that's what I wanted when I started out. I didn't want to be an accountant where it was this day in the month and then I knew what I was doing on that day. My current life might be a bit too diverse for my <laughs> for me to keep up, to be honest. So an average day would be a mix of online meetings or going out and talking to people at sites. So I do a lot of audience development work as well as collections-based work and strategy work. Or I might be spending a whole day working with a, a collection organising a collection of archives and objects. Um, so I have a couple of key clients that I go and see very regularly that I'm, I'm caring for their, their individual collections. And then other clients I'm working with on a longer term basis, like National Trust for Scotland, where we're doing various strategic pieces of work, um, helping them plan for the future of their archive service. So yeah, no, there's, there's no one day that's straightforward it feels as a freelancer do you now primarily work at home do you have an office somewhere or is it kind of done from home and then you think you mentioned going out to site as and when is yeah. needed yeah I've, I've been based at home for the for the last sort of 16 years I don't have I don't have an office I had a, I had a small child and the logistics of dropping off at school and going to an office just weren't working so you know, I based the I based my office and then going for site visits that might be anywhere from Edinburgh to Truro, <laughs> and then working on individual sites. So it could be that I would have a week where I might have three days in my office and one day on site, one day undertaking consultation, which could be on the street or it could be in focus groups. So it, it's, it's really, really varied and it takes a lot of organisation to keep track of myself. In terms of managing your workload as a freelancer, how, how does that work? Because you know, I think one of the big anxieties that a lot of people have about going freelance is, will I get enough work? And obviously you talked about network there. How does that work? Is it just something that naturally, once your reputation's established, stuff keeps coming in or do you have to say no to things or how do you manage that process it's it's really hard it's really hard i think when i started out i always expected the work to stop and it did it did stop sometimes and um, and it's an absolute ongoing fear that the work will stop coming and um, and because it's a mix of bidding for work 
and work just appearing and continuing work. Um, what I always have in the back of my mind is that every piece of work is a way to sell myself. So you need to make sure that every piece of work is really top quality as far as you can because your reputation is absolutely everything as a freelancer and you you can you can become a bit paranoid about that that's what keeps the work coming the mix of the network the quality of your work having fingers and lots of pies so i can do your practical archive work your strategic archive work and your audience development on a wider basis I'm working with Lancashire Wildlife Trust at the moment who are working on an audience development project and um, that's something I never imagined as a as a trained archivist I would get involved in but it's all the same basic skills of audience development evaluation planning talking to people about how they're involved in a project so lots of transferable skills really and do you take time out as a freelancer to to update your own skill set or is that just all done on the job? So are there any particular bits of training that you think? Because obviously that must you must be thinking, God, if I do this training, that's going to cost me however many days or yeah. that I could potentially be earning. Yeah, I've, I've been really aware of that and I've take, undertaken two big pieces of training. So I don't. I've done lots of little day training as I go as I go along, but a couple of years ago I realised that, gosh, I'm in my fifties, and when I did my archives training, we we said, oh yes, digital will be a problem, but that was all we said. We we had no way of tackling the preservation of digital archives. And so I thought, no, I'm gonna have to go back to school and learn what the latest is about digital preservation. So I went back into the distance learning postgraduate certificate in digital record keeping, just so that I could, was up to date with the, 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 the current knowledge. Um, and that was, that was really important to do, that I was able to talk to people and use the right language. And then now I'm doing a, uh, I'm, I'm preparing for retirement. Gosh, I feel old. Um, because I'm freelance, I have a very small pension. And therefore, I am not going to be able to just give up work. Um, but I want to be able to do different work. So I want to do um, genealogy work and, and develop my house history work when I retire, which doesn't pay very well. So I'm doing a master's in genealogy very slowly <laughs> distance learning from the university of strathclyde so that that's my my current cpd as we as we say when i've looked at, at your background it's it's a combination of everything that you've done throughout your career so far so i, I guess the obvious question here is is this the kind of thing that you imagine that you'd be doing when you were starting to think about careers back when you were say at school or shortly after that no <laughs> no 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 not at all um i imagined first of all i wanted to be a teacher and then i decided no that was two the same thing every day and um, then i wanted to work in retail which no that wouldn't have worked either um and then when i was at university 
it was the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, and I started, uh, you know, the, the, the country was not in the best position, and I started panicking. I was going to have to find a job very soon after I left university. I had no money. Um, so I, I took, you know, I went to the careers department and I looked through everything and I thought, gosh, I'm doing a history and politics degree. That's perfect for the foreign office. And um, I said to the careers advisor, what do you think, the foreign office? And she said, no, diplomatic service, foreign office? No, they won't want people like you. No, really? And I think they, I think what she meant was working class scouser. Um, I think I honestly think that's what she meant, um, because I was standing there with really good quality A levels. I was heading towards a two one degree, uh, not bad from a good university, not bad. Um, that must have been crushing for someone to say that to you at that point. But I knew what she meant. It was crushing, but I knew exactly what she meant. They wouldn't have wanted someone like me at that stage. How did you respond to that? Well, you don't tell me that I can't do something. But, as, but I, I, I realised she was probably right with the Foreign Office. So I went away and said, well, I'm going to have to find something else. I need to find another job and I need to be in control of my destiny. So I looked through everything, all in the careers library, and I came across an advert for an archive trainee at the University of York, at the Borthwick Institute. And I'd missed the application date, which was infuriating, but it said things like, if you're organised, if you're interested in history, if you want to share that with people, um, you're the sort of person that we're interested in getting involved in archives. So I took this to the careers lady and I said, well, what about this then? And um, and she said, no, they won't want you. And I thought, well, if they don't want me as well, then, well, no, I'm not having that. There's no reason why they wouldn't want me. So I, I became pretty determined to to have a career in archives at that point. Yeah, she wasn't going to she wasn't going to say no to me twice. <laughs> So was there a, 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 an interest in that area as well? I mean, you'd done history and politics, so was that something that you'd been gravitating towards? So did you have an interest in, say, for example, museums or that kind of work? Really interesting because I'd, I'd gone to lots of historical sites and museums as a child, but I, it hadn't struck me that you could work there. Right. <laughs> um and that it could be a career. So, and but I also had a, an interest in genealogy and had had an interest in genealogy since a teenager. And I'd enjoyed being in archive environment and the research side, the digging around and finding out the story and putting that together. Um, and so, so yeah, the, the, the whole, oh, you can work in archives. There is a job that that sounds like it's for me. So, so what happened after that? You saw the job, you'd missed the date, but you'd gone back and said, "I want to do this." Yeah. They'd, they'd said no, and you said, "I'm not having that." No, I said, "I'm not having that." And my my degree finished, and I went back home, and I started applying for 
jobs that were near archives because I knew I needed a part uh, postgraduate qualification to become an archivist. So I applied for a job that was a graduate library trainee with a trade union in London. And it was one of those jobs that's in The Guardian. And they had 500 applicants and I got it. Wow. And, that, and I, I think that I got it because in the interview, they started, um, they started, uh, they were winding me up, but I didn't realise. They said, uh, oh, yeah, you're from Liverpool. Oh, Liverpool. You know, this was 91. Liverpool, oh, riots. Oh, Liverpool, oh, rough people, you know. And, and I thought, I'm not having this. And so I basically told them I wasn't having it and was quite prepared to have lost the job, but not thinking that this is a trade union. That's what they wanted me to say. <laughs> so you must have had your confidence bolstered after that interaction with the careers um, team and then a tricky interview, which turned out well for you. Yeah. So what did that job look like? What was the kind of work you were doing there? I helped to manage the resource library at the trade union. And so it was um, a, a library of books. And then every morning I had the great job of reading all the newspapers and creating a cutting service for the trade union officers. Um, so I read everything from the Telegraph to the Morning Star and cut out articles that would be of interest to the, the trade union officers and then made sure that they had all the resources that they needed. About three months into that job, the librarian left um, and they asked me if I wanted to act as the librarian for the rest of the, the year that I was there. So I acted as librarian, not really knowing what I was doing, but suddenly feeling confident to take it on and running with it. So was that a, yeah. a change then in, in the type of work that you were doing from the cutout stuff? Was that managing people at that point? Yeah, it was managing people, which was really scary for a... Um, a young 21-year-old who didn't know top from bottom and, and was working for a trade union. I realised they had to be careful managing people when you're working for a trade union. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a learning curve, shall we say. <laughs> so, and you'd said that in order to work in archives, which is what you were you kind of interested in at that point that you needed a postgraduate qualification. So was that something that was in job descriptions that was kind of, you know, you need a particular qualification in that area? Back then it was the absolute only way to become an archivist. It's still pretty much the only way to become an archivist, but it's we're trying to widen access these days. But yeah, it was in all the job descriptions. You must have a postgraduate qualification. Uh, it was... It was the only way. How how did you, you go about that process when needing to work, I guess, at the same time? Yeah, so I first of all thought, well, the logical place is for me to apply to Liverpool, come back home, apply for next year, apply to Liverpool. Um, and um, I think I rang them up and I said, uh, I, I, you know, I've got all this experience. Because at the same time, I was volunteering in, an e in the evening after work for a local archive service. I would go into Westminster every night 
um, and, and volunteer for them as well as my full-time job. So I rang Liverpool up and I said, uh, what, what's the likelihood of me getting on the master's course at Liverpool? Um, and they said, do you have Latin? And I said, no. I'm, I'm, I went to a Liverpool comp. I, I haven't got Latin. <laughs> and she said, no, you, no, don't apply. You won't get on. Um, because back then you needed Latin. So I ended up applying to Aberystwyth, who didn't want Latin. And I had to apply twice to get on their postgraduate diploma, as it was then. And I ended up going there. Why Latin? What's the... Well, because an archivist needs to be able to deal with archival documents from the the earliest times. And, you know, some of them are written in Anglo-Saxon. A lot of them before 1733 are written in, in Latin. So to be able to understand court records, you know, um, title deeds, all those sorts of records that you might need to be able to catalogue and care for as an archivist, you need to know Latin. But I was able to go to Aberystwyth and while I was doing the postgraduate diploma, I took uh, an evening class in Latin. So I still had to la learn some Latin. So there's a pattern that you're always doing more than one thing at once already at this point, isn't there? You kind of, you know, oh, I you are I... definitely. So is that kind of just, you're just interested in stuff and ambitious and trying to add those things together to get where you need to be? I like learning. And, and I think that, that you you don't get anywhere unless you unless you push yourself to get somewhere um yeah and maybe that career's obviously did me a favor by saying no twice because it yeah. stoked a fire I, it, I, it definitely i i think i would imagine that's something that would really stick with you where you kind of every hurdle you come against you think okay well You've got that voice in the back of your head that says, I, you know, somebody told me I couldn't do it, so I'm going to prove that person wrong. I mean, I'd be interested if you... I'm assuming you never met that person again. I wouldn't even know what she looked like. Um, <laughs> no, no. But it's something that's motivated you for a long time afterwards, which is really interesting. It, it has, it has. And um, I think also knowing that the background I'd, I'd come from as a as a, a working class person in Liverpool, where at a time where everyone was leaving the city, and we were all having to go out and find our own way, I wasn't the only person that was going somewhere else, and having to fight to get work, and you know nothing comes easy. So you're at Aberystwyth, you you're doing the postgraduate diploma and Latin at the same time to cover that base. Um, how long did that take? Was that part-time or full-time? That was full-time. Um, there was no part-time back then. Uh, full-time, uh, nine months. Okay. Yeah. And did you have an eye on what you wanted to do after that? Or was did the course set you up with anything that that provided an access point for potential employment? Yeah, the, the, the course trained archivists. And they expected back then that you would go out and become an archivist in a local record office, which is what I did. So each local authority has a record office that cares for their archives and collects archives from the locality. And I went and worked in Buckinghamshire. 
So you've moved quite quite a lot by this point. Were you just kind of looking for the jobs and going for it? Yeah. I, I knew I had to move to, to work. And, and I think in the end, I moved house every year for 10 years. I think it was all together. I didn't move job every year. Um, uh, I think I was a Buckinghamshire for about three or four years, but it was a, a great place to, to start out because they were very kind to me, for one thing, as a new archivist. But they've got amazing archive collections and they were just really, really well run. So what did that, what did that job look like on a day-to-day basis? What kinds of stuff were you doing there? So it was a mix, really, of running a search room, so a room where the public would come and look and research archives. So people would come in, they'd be interested in their family tree, or they would be looking for why a hole had appeared in their garden, so they'd be looking for what was on the building site beforehand, or they'd be looking for um, an archive that will help them to um, prove their background or um, so a real range of of questions that we were faced with in that reading room so so many days a week I'd be running the reading room and then so many days a week I'd have the joy of cataloguing a collection so um, a a collection of archives that could be from any date back to maybe the 13th century right up to date that would be delivered to to us in bin bags even and making sense of those describing them in a catalogue and making that catalogue available to the public and then we did a lot of outreach going out to to talking to people about archives and trying to get them involved it's obviously two bits to that there there's there's working with objects and 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 documents but there's also quite a big public facing part of that yeah. so is it, it were you enjoying both of those equally at that point was that and, and being able to split your time between that and interest i think i think i was uh, that when running a public search room when you don't know much at the start's really hard because most of the researchers knew more yeah. than I did. <laughs> and then people would come to ask me questions and the researchers would answer them for me, to be honest, the other researchers. But eventually, after about six months, you, you get to know a lot more. I think I probably was enjoying both equally. There's something so special about being the first person who's opened a diary for 200 years. We had a diary that came through the post to us. It's, it's fantastic. It's from a little place called Bledlow Ridge in Buckinghamshire, and it was scurrilous. <laughs> it's full of rumour, full of gossip, uh, but it was completely anonymous. So I spent a good time reading and trying to work out who was the writer of this um, really gossipy diary. And that's one that was real highlights. And then about six months after that, another one arrived in the post. <laughs> and were you taking this kind of work home with you to do reading? And was this something that was leaking out of your normal number of hours or was it done in a contained way? No, it was all pretty much contained back then. Yeah, I was much better. <laughs> so how long were you there for? I was there for about um, three, four years. Okay. And what what happened? Did you just 
get the the itch for a, a change. Yeah, I needed a change, and so I went and I um became senior archivist in East Kent. So I was running archive service that was along the East Kent coast, and got involved in setting up a new building for them, and a lot more um, strategic work involving getting partners on board with what we were doing, preserving the collections there. And I was based at Canterbury Cathedral, which was really amazing place to work. What kind of stuff were you doing there on a day-to-day basis? So again, a mix of cataloguing and providing access, but also planning for bringing archives together from nine, we had them in nine sites with two members of staff, impossible. Right. Um, um, but each of these sites had different stakeholders that had an interest in the collections being local to them. So I spent a lot of time persuading them that storing medieval archives in a storage room next to the men's public toilets was not the perfect place to keep them. And then eventually we moved them all into one new East Kent Archive Centre. And then I left before it opened. <laughs> Which <laughs> That must have been really frustrating if you'd done all of that negotiating oh, uh, not to see it come to fruition. It, it really was. I mean, we, we, we'd moved all, the archives were safe. They were all in the new building. They were no longer at risk. But I didn't get to see the doors open. But a job came up in the northwest when my partner and I needed to be in the same place for once. Right. <laughs> so we both decided the northwest is somewhere we could both get jobs. So we moved back to the northwest. So I ended up at Wirral for a year <laughs> before a st- more strategic job came up. And I worked for Museums, Libraries and Archives Council as a development officer so taking a step away from collections really yeah but working with other archive services to help them to develop and improve so what motivated you to to make that jump there away from the the more hands-on stuff to the strategic side of of the work that the mla did back then I think it was partly because I couldn't hang around in Wirral. It wasn't the job I as expected. Right. And I was going to be frustrated there. Um, And then this opportunity, which was only a temporary opportunity, came up and it had a much greater opportunity to create change, to see improvement, to help more archive services and preserve more archives than I would do it at, 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 uh, at one place at Wirral. So what was the crux of that job? What did that look like? Yeah, so I, I was responsible for developing and um, delivering the reg- what was called a regional archive strategy. So we, have a, we had a strategy to help to improve archive service across the Northwest that involved everything from getting more people through the door to get more archives catalogued. So we we set up various different projects around the region that would develop the the services in the region. But it also involved advocacy within central government, 
um, which is something I'd never been involved in before. So trying to get the Museums, Libraries and Archives Council, MLA, to understand about archives and then to help them with their negotiations with um, DCMS. So very different. The obvious question, I think, around this point is, is that that's a significant shift in the types of skills that you need. So is there a, a point where you revisited any training or mentoring around that kind of shift there? Because it sounds like it's not just management, it's strategic work, which is, you've sounds like you've done bits of it, like, for example, at Kent, bringing those archives together. But this is a different level. Is that Would that be fair to say? Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very different level. There were lots of people around me that were much more experienced and it was a lot of working with them, following their lead, learning from them. So senior archivists and heads of culture. But it still felt like I didn't understand enough about that sort of working. And so then after a couple of years at at MLA, that's why I went on the, the Claw Leadership Programme to really help me to understand what what it was to be a leader and to help develop those skills. So did you just apply for that and, and go through the process and, and get on there and Yeah. Yeah. And and how how long was that? That was gosh, I think it was a year. So it was a mix of training and placement and research. So I I, I went and worked in different cultural organisations with an aim to overall develop my my cultural leadership skills and, and really understand more about the, the type of leader that I wanted to be. Because I always thought, oh, you know, leader, these people are on these cultural leadership skills. They're all going to go and run the Tate or they're all going to go and run the, the V&A. But actually, leadership's about having influence all sorts of different levels and and I knew that probably to be able to combine the sort of personal life I wanted, you know, I wasn't going to be able to work for the National Archives. They're in queue. I'm not going to move to queue. You started to make quite strategic decisions about how you balance where you want to be geographically, kind of what other priorities you've got. And is there an influence that's coming from the types of job trees that exist there in archives about the potential of how far you can go and and what kind of security that might give you? I mean, career development in archives is much better than it used to be. It used to be very much dead man's shoes, but there are so many more opportunities now in the sector than there were 16 years ago when I went freelance. Now we're involved in lot in you know in digital preservation opportunities, managing current records, lots more temporary roles that involve engaging the public with activities. So I don't think I'd have the same. I hope I wouldn't have the same issues that that I had then. But yeah, I was definitely making decisions. They were going to place me in the location that I wanted yeah. to be for definite. And and just to go back to the CLAW programme there. So I've interviewed quite a few people who've done CLAW along the way. It's really interesting to hear how they talk about 
those two or three really critical parts of it, which are about the peer group that you're a part of as as one kind of defining feature, but quite often the placements as well. So that ability to temporarily embed yourself in other organisations. So so whereabouts did you go for the placements? Um, I went to the um, Everyman and Playhouse Theatre in Liverpool and National Museums Liverpool because I realised, and I chose them quite de deliberately because I realised I'd never worked in Liverpool, <laughs> although <laughs> I was living there. And, and I wasn't embedded in the the the, the city at all, um, and that that's why I particularly wanted to 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 do that. I mean, I knew an awful lot about the archive sector in the northwest, but not much about Liverpool. So an opportunity to start really developing that network and connecting yeah, the dots there. Definitely. Are you still in touch with people from Claw? Are you still in touch with the peer group that you have? I I very much am. I yes. I, it's one of these groups where you know that you can just ring someone up and say you've done this. Talk to me about it or how can we do this? And it's a completely safe, supportive way to to do that. Yeah, I've got one of my Claw Fellows who's who's providing me a wonderful case study for my genealogy masters at the moment. I'm researching his tree, his family history. Um but I think it does give you that really good support network that you can call upon. But it also gives you a, a time to reflect, time to think about where you want to go and what you want to achieve and why and to see how other people are planning their careers and their their life and 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 it it's, it always seems to me that everyone who goes on claw is at a turning point or if they're not when they start they are when they finish <laughs> and it gives you that time to decide which way you're going to be heading so we were you doing that whilst you were at the MLA? Was that a funded thing that was part of that work that you did? Yeah, they gave me a sabbatical. Right. Okay. So a load yeah. of space, and yeah. uh, and it was kind of supported. So there were weren't financial concerns that were linked to that at the time. So no. it, it's no. a really liberating kind of opportunity in that sense, isn't it? It it was. It was. It really was. And by the time I came back, I'd pretty much decided that I couldn't go back right. and that I was going to go freelance and the first week back they offered me redundancy. <laughs> the stars aligned for you. I, it was really hard because everybody else was getting made redundant as well right. and I was really happy. Right. So, and, and of course not everybody else was. So was that just the change that was happening at that point, the MLA? It was, yeah. Kind of coming to an end. Yeah. They was they were restructuring. The Northwest office was restructuring, right? Um, and so there were quite a few redundancies as a result. So how did you you go about that process then of setting yourself up? Because that feels for somebody I've I've been a a paye person for my entire professional life. You know, I work at the university, and that thought of going freelance is quite terrifying. How how did you do that? God, yeah, my mum is still terrified about us. <laughs> uh, where's the money coming from? I think because a lot of the people that have been on Claw were freelance. And I thought, well, if they could do it, I can definitely do it. And 
because I'd worked for the museums, libraries and archives council, and created a network in the northwest. That's where I went to. So I went to all the all that network and said, "Listen, I'm I'm freelance now." But that's really hard when you start out. You know, I was going to lots of events and networking opportunities, and people that I'd worked with before were saying, "Oh, I've got this problem." And I had this voice in the back of my head saying, say you can do it, say you can do it. And that's what I just started saying. You know, people would be chatting to me and I'd say, you know, I can do that for you. That's It's quite brave, isn't it, to do the hard sell? But you have no option. No, no. My The friends that I have who are freelance, I kind of sometimes, you know, have these conversations and it's, you know, a Wednesday and I've had a really difficult day and I know that there's an event in the evening and I can, you know, I can choose whether to go, whereas I think some of my freelance friends don't feel quite the same. They think, no, this is an an opportunity for me to potentially get more business, develop, you know, another opportunity there. And and that must feel quite intimidating sometimes or kind of exhausting, Mm. I guess. I think it's the constant nature of the trundle wheel of getting work in that can be exhausting. I think I've got past the, uh, the the fear of saying to people I can do that because I've, I've my head's now got to the point where I need to do that or, or yeah, you know, it's got yeah. To, but the constant trundle wheel of I just want to finish this project and not be thinking about the next one at the same time or yeah. planning for this for the next one at the same time and then were you finding that you had multiple projects overlapping and you were leapfrogging from one thing to another and yeah. managing your time and existence in a completely different way. It's mad. I mean, I can have projects that are three years long or more and then ones that they asked me to come in to facilitate a meeting for a day. So the the coordination is is really, really tricky. And I think what also is tricky is doing the work that you're most comfortable and can best deliver, not the work that people think you can deliver. You can often get drawn into things that, oh yeah, Jan, Jan, Jan would be good at doing that. And actually when you get down to it, it's, it's not your, it's not your it's bag. It's not your area. And that, I found that very hard. But yeah. then I've done things that, that I didn't think were my bag that are now my bag because I tried them out. <laughs> <laughs> so were the projects that you, you did in those early stages of becoming freelance that put you on the map, that built your confidence and got you over the line on some of those issues? The first project I did was helping Cumbria Archives with a heritage lottery fund application for the Wainwright archive. So Wainwright the Walker. Yep. Um, and he had this amazing archive that was all his drawings, all his writings, but also all his fan mail. Wow. Which was because he had a TV programme in the 70s. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. And he had an awful lot of fan mail. So 1970s fan mail that was great. Um, and we, I wrote a bid to the to the lottery that got them the money, and, and I thought, oh, I quite enjoyed that. I've really made a difference. So, so I do an awful lot of that sort of work now. It's it's 
it's gone up a bit from from uh, in size from um, small collections projects to huge applications for large museums like the Silverstone Museum and Durham History Centre, Manchester Archives, plus got a couple on, on the way at the moment. And I also work on behalf of the lottery now, so they pay me to mentor projects right. and to support them, which is is brilliant. So once once they're up and running, once they're up and... Oh. Once they've got the grant, yeah. the, the lottery sometimes will give them some extra support to make sure that their project is the best it can be really and to act as challenge and mentor um, for the project in terms of audience development and um, strategic planning really, which is really I mean, you can really see a change when you do that sort of work and there's impact to what you do. Yeah. So you, you've been doing this for 16 years at the moment. Um, yeah. And you said earlier on that you were thinking about kind of how you plan for the future and think about how you could change the focus of the work that you were doing. So you mentioned genealogy mm. there. So what does that look like moving forward? What kinds of things might you be doing there? Mm. So the, I've got a, I'm a freelancer with a side hustle. <laughs> I don't think that's really how it works. I think every, and, I think every and, freelancer not got a side hustle. Is that not the nature of a freelancer? <laughs> I think it might be. So for the past couple of years, I've been writing house histories for people. Right. So um, uh, the 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 the, the programme that's on on the the telev on the BBC House Through Time has really ignited people's interest. Um, and I research and write the history of people's houses, everything from small terraced 1907 houses to large mansions, really. And they're really popular and they're really enjoyable. I can use all my archival skills to bring that together for people. And I've always had genealogies as a hobby alongside this. So in the longer term, I will move into doing both of those things on the, on their own probably right. and drop the strategic archive museum heritage work and have that running alongside allegedly retirement <laughs> in some time in the, I don't know, 15 years time maybe, I don't know. But that would, that, that's even more precarious because it's needing individuals to commission you yeah. to do research. Well, I'd imagine that some of the work that you've been doing now over the last 16 years has, has, has been the result of quite significant changes in the sector, the scaling back of certain types of organisations, which means that freelancers fill some of those roles that previously might have been done by internal members of staff. Is that is that accurate? D definitely, and and particularly in the archive sector where they, and museum sector where they might have had, you know, two levels of management. Yeah, they only have one level of management maybe now, and they will bring a freelancer in, and I say I'm I'm an extra pair of management eyes, an extra pair of management hands yeah. on a problem or a potential opportunity. Yeah, so. Yeah, the, the freelancers definitely plugged the gap 
in the, in that and and particularly in the archive sector. So when I started out, there was probably two or three of us, yeah. and there's many many more. But we all seem to have our niche, and I work across more than archives. So yeah. that's very useful for me. Do you hook up with other freelancers on projects where you bring in other people and then you kind of work collaboratively on things where you either you're too busy or where the you know the different skill sets are required definitely and that's what keeps you sane uh you know it's it was it can be too hard if you're not doing that so it's about the skill set it's about the having someone else to work with it's about putting often when we're bidding for a piece of work it's about putting the right sets of experience together and it's also about having someone to walk the dog with or have a chat with or yeah creating your own little freelance networks just in, invaluable and uh, yeah you've had one or two of them on your your uh, I think so <laughs> your talks already I'm thinking about Marge Marge yeah. Is, it seems to be a common factor across a lot of the people that I've, that I've interviewed uh, along the yeah, way. Yeah, so I work with Marge and I've worked with people like um, Jane Davis, um, Emma Parsons, Emma Chaplin. So people people who've yeah. got experience in marketing or museums, objects or conservation, um, a whole range of different people. Well, I think that brings us kind of up to up to current times then and it's it's really interesting to hear about what your plan is moving forward with the genealogy project it'd be nice to check in with you at some point as you're developing that to see how that how that goes uh, but thank you very much for your time today Janice okay. it's been brilliant hearing your story and thanks for sharing thank you Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud and Facebook using the handle Cultural Peeps. And if you want a bit more information about the Careers Pathway project or about any of the conversations or participants, then there's a project blog which is available at culturalpeeps.wordpress.com.